Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All kinds of things pertaining to the law and how it really works from the inside as opposed to the outside. So tune in and learn all you need to know about the legal system and how it works. KCAA Loma Linda. Listen online at www.kcaaradio.com. Robert Manny's The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love is a fast-paced tale of flawed men and savvy women competing for love, sex, power, and money in the city where they play for keeps. It's the men's successor to Sex in the City. The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love is a sexy romp through the fast-moving, high-stakes world of Madison Avenue. Available now on Amazon and wherever books are sold. Miss something today, yesterday, last week? Check out our podcasts at www.kcaaradio.com. We leave no listener behind. KCAA Radio now joins the Sunday morning worship services of the Pruitt Baptist Church in Van, Texas, with Brother Mike Calhoun.
the Spirit, you can, you know, He does what He wants to do. And the Spirit, sometimes it's hard because of the world or things going on in the world, it's hard to be open to the Spirit sometimes. You can, I bet you some of you have this experience where you've come to church on a Sunday morning and seen someone or have somebody say something to you and 30 minutes before you are ready for worship and you want to go beat up cows or you want to go <laughs> it completely changes your frame of mind and it takes some work to get back i mean but you know what if you're willing to let lord the lord work on your work on your heart fill you with the spirit he can bring you back to where you need to be to do what it is you need to do amen which is worship this morning amen that's what we want to do right amen i hope you do so kids say the, the funniest things yes we kept our grandchildren the other night and when we got up Saturday morning, there was some roosters crowing in the backyard. And so they were just wanting to hear those roosters. And so I, we went out on the back porch, and those roosters are crowing. And, and so I just kind of, they were just so excited, and they kind of got quiet. And I thought, I think I can make them crow again. And I thought, I went, rrr, 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 like that. And she said, Papa, I don't know what you said, but I hope it was nice. <laughs> and I said, well, do you think it was, was that a mean-sounding crow? She says, I don't know. And I said, well, let me try again. I went, er, 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 er. You know, same exact crow. He says, oh, yeah, I think that's better. <laughs> she goes to school in Tyler, and I asked her yesterday, and she, she goes to a school, and they're teaching uh, them a cursive writing. And so she says, one of these days, she's going to be able to write me a letter in a cursive writing. So I'm very excited about that. When's the last time you got a letter, a handwritten letter? Have any of y'all had one in the last year? All right, there's one, two. I see four. I see a few. But did you know that is becoming a more rare and rare happening, getting a hand, you know, written letter. I want to challenge you to do something. Um, I see all the men are saying, yeah, I can't wait to go to Walmart and get some stationery. So I can... <laughs> Listen, get you some note paper, whatever it is, and write a handwritten letter to somebody you care about. My dad wrote, he, he only had a third grade education. But I, oh boy, I gotta watch it. But he wrote us a lot of letters when all all through our ministry, and I kept them, and I get them out and read them and stuff. They are very, very meaningful to me. Now think about this, guys. Your sons, your grandsons, as they continue to grow, become men or whatever, one day you're not always be here. And wouldn't it be nice for them to have a handwritten letter from you? Anything, you know, about cows or chickens or just how they're doing, how any little note, and just get used to doing that. People love a handwritten letter. Amen? Okay, do it. I'm telling you, you won't, you won't regret it. Turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Because what we have here is a record of a letter. We have the living word of God. It's a letter from Paul to Timothy. And the gist of this introduction to this little letter here is to fan the flame of God that is with, within you. Um, we all need to be fan, fanned from time to time, don't we, guys? We all need, I mean, it, the Spirit of God within us and how it has called us, how it has saved us, how it has sealed us, we need to have that fan, that fire flamed from time to time. And that's what this introduction of Paul's is saying to Timothy. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, According to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus and our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, 
the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith which was within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Father God, we so need this passage this morning. We so need, dear Lord, to see through Paul's eyes, through the, the light of the Holy Spirit, dear Lord, what he was trying to say to Timothy. Father, in this last, what was probably his last written words, his last letter to a disciple of his, dear Lord, please help us all in this room this morning to remember the brevity of time that we have. What's at stake when our hearts are not right with you, Lord? What's at stake? Eternity is on the line. Paul knew it. As his life drew close to an end, he knew it. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said... So when the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, and he announces, some commentators wondered why he would announce Paul an apostle. Why did, was he so formalized in this very, what is obviously a very intimate letter between he and Timothy? Very sincere. They were very close. Was he informing him? Did Timothy not know? Was he reminding him? No, he is simply expressing. Paul weighted down, and now his life coming to an end because of that apostleship. Because of his great calling, in his introduction, and this probably the last letter that he writes, is also describing his great appreciation for the calling that God had upon his life. He, has, he also adds an unusual phrase here, by the will of God, according to the promise of life. When he talks about that, by the will of God and according to the promise of life, he's reminding, even, he's reminding Timothy as he's reminding himself and now the readers that this thing that has happened in his life, the great motion, the great weight, the great direction of his life, had been according to the will of God. And it's, and it's uniquely connected to the promise of life. That's unusual. Paul doesn't use that exact phrase throughout various scriptures, but here he does. And I think the reason he uses it is because of the circumstances that are going on in his life. He, um, he is under house arrest. Um, he is under a great deal of pressure. Uh, he can see the clock ticking down. And, you know, for us as, um, as human beings, you know, really, it's as we chronologically march through the years, most of our years, we never think about the end of our lives. We never think about the weight and the flow, the magnitude of our lives, where, where our lives are taking us, and what's going to be said about our lives. We don't dwell on that. But as believers and Christians, I'll tell you what, we do well to remember what is the flow of my life? What is the direction of my life? And Paul is addressing those very same issues. He uses even a greater level of intimacy with him when he calls him as my, he calls him his dear son. He uses that phrase here. Uh, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, peace from God. There's a triplet. Remember that Paul loved triplets. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus to our Lord. There's a, there's a tenderness that is existing between Paul, the apostle, and this young disciple, by the will of God, by the will of God, by the call of God to Timothy, 
we, dare we go ahead and interject and, and maybe reminisce a little bit for Paul and, and imagine ourselves that the, the same ocean that, that washed over Paul's life, which was the Lord, which was his calling, that Damascus call on the Damascus road where he was struck blind and fell down helpless, that great introduction into the faith, that that same wave he is now reminding and he knows has, has happened also into Timothy's life. The promise of eternal life. Guys, that's what we're all about. That's what we as Christians are all about. This is the great motion of our lives. We are as varied, listen, around the world and the planet and in this country, we are varied individuals, unique, di- unique people, different personalities, different, different skin colors, different regions, different ethnic backgrounds. But the weight of the Christian's life is tied irrevocably to the gospel. That's why we're still here 2,000 years later. And Paul is about to address in his life the legacy. He's seeing his legacy as it begins to come to an end. Verse 2 again, to my Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace, God the Father, in Christ Jesus, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. Now what's he talking about there? Here's, Here's the challenge for all of us this morning our first challenge. Paul had so lived his life. Now, was Paul a perfect man? No. No, he was not. But Paul had so lived his life that as his ministry drew to an end, as it was drawing to an end, and, he, and it's beginning to intensify, he re, he's about to meet this person he has preached about for these last several years. He begins to look at the legacy of his life. I thank God whom I have served with a clear conscience. His life was a life that was lived that he was able to say to Timothy, I I don't think I've left anything undone. He was convicted about that. Now that's a good place to be. I mean, that's a good place to be in your life. Wouldn't you say that, amen? Would you, you know, if you are raising somebody else's cows or somebody else's sheep, if you're somebody who takes care of somebody else's children and you're or you're a teacher, an educator, and you take them all the way through this process, and you get down towards the end, and your conscience is clear that you've done all that you know to do. That's a good place to be, amen? And Paul was in that place. I have a clear, I'm serving God. I am serving him. And so he's talking about, let me just say a life legacy. What is your life legacy? Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. Is he going to be? Well, he, Paul obviously was thinking about his forefathers. I thank God whom I'm served with a clear conscience. The way my forefathers, the way my forefathers did. Now, now you remember that Paul said in another letter, he said, are they Hebrews? I'm Hebrew. Remember, he goes through this whole long list, circumcised the, the eighth day, son of a, a child of Abraham, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Remember, he goes along this long laundry list, and he talks about, but I counted all dung at, for receiving Christ. It's nothing. So, and that was in a negative connotation, talking about how that the law and all the stipulations of the law 
were, were in place of faith. And so he said, listen, all that stuff that you do, all those pedigrees, I counted all that as, that's nothing in comparison to knowing Christ. So that's in a negative connotation. But here he's talking about a people of God who were pursuing God in a positive connotation. His forefathers, and through the hundreds of years since the time of Moses, were God's chosen people pursuing God. They were people after God. They were legacy legends. And he's, he's hearkening back to those, those people of God that were in his family and his ancestors. They were legacy legends. Do you know some legacy legends? People who are just church, been church people. Church people, people who, who have been of the faith, people who, you know, pray is praying and, and things are not new to their family. They're legacy legends, number one. Number two, you might want to make a little note about this. It's all good, I promise you. Perhaps you're a legacy pioneer. Now, there's, there's people we know that are legacy legends. Those, I mean, you can, I was so... I, <laughs> I love genealogy. I've been doing this genealogy thing for the last couple of years. It's so addictive. I was ho so hoping to find all this different historical stuff about, you know what, I'm basically nothing. <laughs> I'm basically just lucky to be here. I'm serious. I so wanted to have a relative who was at the Alamo, and I probably did, but they were on the other team. <laughs> I am no legacy le legend. But my wife, on the other hand, and this is, this is God laughing at me. He's mocking me. She has family, direct lineage that was in every major conflict the country's ever been in. Uh, where's Betty Wilson at? What's the one? The daughters of the American Revolution. Sons of the American Revolution. People that go all the way back to the beginning of our nation. The stuff I was just wanted so, I'm none of that. Now, my children are now because they are their mom, not their dad. Do you know Christians like that? They go back through years and years and years, and they've just always been in church. There's an excitement to that. There's a neatness to that. But let me tell you something. You're some of you are like me. You're, you're legacy pioneers. That's, doesn't that sound exciting? Amen? Your faith, you just got in the faith. Your wife or your husband was just baptized. You just had a child saved at vacation Bible school. You might not know how to pray. You don't know what to say around the table. If somebody was brave enough to finally pray around the table, you wouldn't know what to say. I'm going to tell you something. I'd rather be where you're at than have them go back a thousand years. Because that's my life. That's mine and Brenda's life because we both have that in common. Our families were not big Christians. They were not big movers and shakers in the church, didn't do things for the Lord. But the Calhouns have tried to make a mark following Christ have tried to learn how to pray around the table, have tried to learn to discipline ourselves to come to church uh, as much as we can so that we can be here to worship, have tried to learn how to study God's Word, how to, to, do to tell other people about God. We've tried to do that. We've tried to be legacy pioneers with no experience, no one around us but mentors, godly men and women to help us along the way. And with no frame of reference, trying to reach a point like Paul did where we'll be able to say one day, my con our conscience is clear, we've done all that we know to do as a Christian family. Legacy legends, legacy pioneers, just make sure you're part of the family of God that has accepted Christ. Have legacy goals. 
be, I'm trying to get you to think critically, intentionally about where are you going? Where's the great weight of your life going in your legacy goals? And I've said these names to you before. I've thought about different people that Brenda and I have tried to emulate and tried to follow the Sextons, the Lukes. Um, Sue Aday was one of the most godly associational secretaries I've ever met. She should have, they should have paid her to be the associational director. She took care of more pastors, more youth ministers than anybody else ever did. So that we can get to a place in our life where we can say our, our conscience is clear. He said, I am mindful of this. He said, um, I am mindful of the sincere faith which dwelt in you, which also first dwelt in your grandmother and Lois and your mother-in-law, Eunice. I am sure that it is within you as well. Paul had a long, verse 4 talks about how he had a longing to see him. He said, I'm remembering your family. I'm remembering the, the feeling, the, not the feelings, but the feeling. The feeling of the spirit that, that was in them, and I'm sure it's in you as well. Listen. Some of you older Christians here, that, some of the, that's your ministry right there, is to look to younger Christians sometimes and to remind them of the things that you've seen God do, maybe not only in their life, but in the life of their parents and their grandparents. I had a conversation with a young woman one day, and she was, she was in church, out of church, in church, out of church. She wouldn't mind me sharing this. I'm not going to name her. Called me on the phone one day, and I'm, I'm, it was one of those days, Preston, you know, where you're going to go ahead and you're going to let them have it today. They're talking this, they're going, maybe do we go left or right? And I finally said, listen, your grandparents rolled in here in the van, Texas, about 60 years ago, tried this church, that church, but you know what they finally did? They made a decision, a decision, they settled down, they got in there, they went into church, and they've done something with their life. And they're known in this community because of who they are in Christ. Now, you do the same or give it up. Do one or the other. Well, you know what? I can't believe I said that to her. But I heard a bunch of people crying on the other end of the line. She had me on speakerphone. Her whole family was there. <laughs> That's right, Brother Mike. That you just what you just said. I don't care what church she goes, just go to I mean, so, Okay, well, I gotta go. Bye. Bye bye. <laughs> She's in church. Her and her family and her kids are in church. She's serving. And they have consistently for the last, well, how long has that been? Five, six years, honey? Consistent. Everyone in the room know who it is if I told you. What kind of legacy are you building towards God and the things of God? Paul said, I long to see you. I remember this faith that was in your parents, your grandparents, your grandmother, your mother and your grandmother. I'm reminded about your own tears. Be careful. We are reaching a place in Christian circles where people are worried about emotionalism. And, I, and we don't build a church. You can't build a church or a relationship with God built on emotionalism. But don't tell me that knowing Christ and following, following Christ doesn't affect you emotionally. It does. And Timothy was affected emotionally. I, I have these visions of him as he was being witnessed to in the little dark room under candlelight. And his mother and grandmother were there. And he came to faith under their tutelage. And he became mighty in the Lord. You're building a legacy of some kind, whether you realize it or not. Did you know in social archaeology, they say that in a family, and you, you'll recognize this, in families, they have their own stories. They have these different stories, and they tell these stories over and over and over again. And it does some different things for them. It helps bind them together. Maybe hunting trips or particular Thanksgivings or different things they've done, trips they've been on. It binds them together as a family. It answers different questions that they have. It removes uncertainty about the future. 
and it can motivate and inspire a family. Yeah, that's when your great-grandpa so-and-so, that was a bad year, and they did this and this, and you just fill in the blank, and it's a great testimony for that family. But brothers and sisters, you're building, you're building a spiritual legacy, a spiritual story you are living out right now. And you're remembering the people of God, the trials that you've been through, the journeys you've been through, the victories you've had, and yes, some defeats, because all battles have some victories and some defeats. You're building that story. And I can just imagine that Paul, as he was writing Timothy, was reminded of what it was that Timothy had done and how, he'd how he behaved when he was exposed to the gospel. And with all of, I, with all of what I just said in mind, with all of that in mind, look at verse 6. Paul said all of that to get to verse 6. For this reason. Everybody say, for this reason. For this reason, I want to remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you. Through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but one of power and love and discipline. Paul has gone through all of this reminding and all of this cajoling and just the introduction there. All of these real, real life experiences to get to this in this first section of Second Timothy to remind him for this reason, you need to stir that gift again. The gift that is within you. Timothy, stir this fire. See, most Christians don't know what their gift is. But the Bible is completely clear, is explicitly clear about it. If you're a believer here this morning, you have a gift. You have some type of spiritual gift. You have some type of ability. It's not unique to, in the whole world. It's, there's maybe others that have it, but you have it too. And God intends for you to use that gift. And some of the problems that you have with, with church and with the pastor or with, all of, with singing, with all these other different things, you know what it's really related to? It's related to your gift and you not doing what it is that you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be a teacher or an encourager, or an administration, or something. You're supposed to be doing something, but you're not. And so you know what you do? You get into trouble. You get out because you, you flail around. You don't know which direction you're going into. Paul and Timothy knew what Timothy's gift was. I think it was a gift to preach, a gift to pastor. And he had recognized that. He accepted it. Uh, he submitted to it. What is that calling in his life? Have you submitted to the call of God in your life? Some of you haven't done, got to, to first base yet because you have not been saved yet. And like Bailey, who was in her bed one night two years ago and looking at her Bible and was pricked in her heart and finally thought, you know what, I really need to pray. And so she settled that. Now, she waited a little while, which a lot of Christians do, but I'm just glad she did it because it means she's going to be in heaven. Some of you need to get to base one and just be saved. Brother Mike, I cannot recall a time in my life where I prayed and accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. I don't. Well, then you need to take care of that. Because you're never going to find the gift that's going to fit because you don't have that gift yet. You've got to be saved. You'll get a gift. Well, Charles Lloyd had moved to Calera, Oklahoma. Don't think this is the end. This is a really neat illustration. Charles Lloyd had moved to Calera, Oklahoma. Right about the time, Brent and I had been saved and got in church. And he had, this was from Irving, Texas, so he's a Texan. But he had a very exciting ministry. And he was 65, 67 years old when he moved to Clara. Big deer hunter, you know. I mean, he had a lot of neat things I could identify with. I love this guy. He was a really neat guy. 
But then finally, after I got to church with him about a year, he was real quiet, didn't say a lot. He stood up in a service just like this, and he said, I want to tell you all something. I'd, come, I'd moved to southeastern Oklahoma to retire. But everything that's going on in this church is driving me nuts. And we all just went, oh, my goodness, what are we doing? He said, he said people answering the call of God, teaching classes, surrendering to preach, leaving on mission. He said, I can't take it. I'm going, I went to the associational offices last week, talked to our director. We prayed together. And he said, I'm going to take a church right over here in town. He got back in. He got back in. He went pastor that church. He start, Now, this guy had, had started several churches in Dallas. Two big churches in Irving, rather. I, I don't, those aren't the same thing, but to me it is if you're from Oklahoma. It's all Dallas. He went and pastored that church. He started two more churches in Bryan County that are still in existence today and pastored another church and did a lot of interiming. After that fact, he couldn't stand it because God pulled him back in because there's always a need until he comes back. Somebody say amen. He got back in. Some of you are doing what Charles did. And you're saying, well, I've done my time. I've done vacation Bible school. Well, I'm, I'm too old now to do it. You know what? When Brother Mike says the amen over your coffin in the front of this church, that's when it's over. Until then, the Lord's got dibs on you. He's got dibs on your time and your life and where he's taking you and what he's going to do in your life. You're still in the game whether you realize it or not. And so he has to say to him to stir that gift with, which is within you that came through the laying on of my hands. He was ordained to minister. Verse says, 7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Now, one of the ways you can interpret Scripture, and this is really a neat way to do it, is you can say this, to do a mirror reading. Everybody say mirror reading. Is you read a verse of Scripture and say, well, he's saying this, so it must have meant that he didn't have any power, love, or discipline. And sometimes that can be effective, but that's probably not what's going on here. What he's saying is that probably Timothy, under the intense pressure of what was going on in their community, had had some bouts where he shrunk back. Maybe, maybe he was threatened. It could have been people from the congregation. We don't know. But he's reminding him, for God did not give you the... Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The spirit of timidity, of fear, of anxiousness. But what he did give you was a spirit of power and love, agape, selfless love, and of self-discipline. Timothy, get back in there and fight like you're fighting a fight. And all I'm saying, all I'm, you're not getting anything from me. It's from him. And that is this. Those of you who know you're Christians, get back in there and start fighting. Somebody say amen. Recover that gift. Focus on your legacy. 
fanned the flame. Fight the power. The power of God that's dwelling within you. There is no power in the world like that power. There's incredible evil in the world. Things look incredibly bad, but the power within you cannot be overcome with the power. The power that is within you cannot be overcome by the power that's in the world. We've already got them beat. But don't just sit on the sideline, because that is not where you are supposed to be. Amen, Kendra? Let me pray for you. Father, fan the flame. Fan the flame that you have put in your people. Help them to aspire, God, to serve you in a great and mighty way. Help them to be intentional in the legacies that they're building. They're building legacies, Lord, anyway. Help us to build a legacy. Oh, Lord, that when we look at you and we see you finally face to face, and we're standing there in that holy moment, we can stand there with a clear conscience, knowing you did it all. You did it all, Lord. You did it all. Father, I just truly believe there are people that are here this morning that have never been saved, and they're just waiting. They're on the other side of eternity. They don't realize it. But I'm asking your Holy Spirit to do what this preacher cannot and that is convict them and twist them, contort them, Lord, in such a way that they have to get some relief. That's how you saved me, Lord. That's how you called me. You hurt my heart so bad. But I finally just said, yes, 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 whatever you want. Whatever you want. There's some people in this, this room right now dealing with that. And I, Mike Callahan cannot help them, but you can, Lord. I'm asking you to do that. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said. You're listening to the Sunday morning worship services of the Pruitt Baptist Church in Van, Texas, with Brother Mike Calhoun. Hey, turn over in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. I want to read a passage of Scripture to you, and then I want to talk about some interesting things about the Gospel of John and this chapter also. But in Exodus chapter 3, you are familiar with this passage of Scripture. You know this. This is a very famous uh, passage. You undoubtedly seen Charlton Heston when he went up. You know, Cecil B. Mill had him go up on the mountain and receive the Ten Commandments. But there was a very famous scene in there where God speaks to him out of the, out of the fire. And so, um, uh, do you know a lot of young people haven't seen those movies? You know, they haven't seen the, a lot of those 60s and 70s, King of King, Lord of Lords. And uh, I remember as a lost child. Uh, in a home where we weren't church, mom and dad did not take us to church, seeing them and thinking, wow, you know, that was all the gospel I was getting at that time. But look at these verses right here with me, and let's see what we can glean from them tonight. Uh, Exodus chapter 3, the scriptures say, Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see the marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near me. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place from which you are standing is holy and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. 
Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to, a place of the, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression which the Egyptians are oppressing them. And so you know there's an interaction that takes place here, and now Moses is interested. Let's keep reading verse 10. Therefore come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you. I love this verse. And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. And then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now, now, that, now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. Probably one of the more resonating passages from the Old Testament into the New, and probably probably one of the more revelatory passages for Messianic Jews. Can you imagine reading this verse of Scripture and as a, a Jewish person, person of a Jewish faith, and then becoming converted at some point, and thinking about how many times you've read that passage, and you see the Lord God identifying himself as I am. Now, there's some historical reasons for this. Uh, some of the reasons that are connected to why God has called himself I am that I am was because the Canaanite religions and the Egyptian religions at, at that particular time were a plethora. There were hundreds of different kinds of gods that they worshipped. Uh, this is represented in the curses that came against Israel. Uh, all of the curses, the locusts and the river and the firstborn, all of those were gods that they worshipped. The flies, the gnats, the blood, they worshipped all that stuff. And so in every one of these places, when they had these false gods that they worshipped, when God stepped back into history in such a powerful and dynamic way, he said, no, I am the God. Of, I am the God uh, of the river. I am the God of the firstborn. I am the one who has control of these particular uh, 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 elements of nature. And so when God identifies himself to Moses, Moses is wanting to know, okay, which one of the gods are you? There's hundreds of them, hundreds. And so I'm going to go back to the people, and I'm going to tell them that you sent me. Well, so which one of them will I? You just tell them that I am that I am. So he basically gave them a name in no name. He gave them a name in the midst of a no name. They would know who he was and how he was working. Um, this represents for us a confrontation with God. Moses is having a confrontation with God. Can you think of those moments in your life Surely, even in your salvation experience, where God brought everything to a particular point, and, and this was your personal confrontation. Moses is having a personal confrontation with the Lord at this bush. He's going to do some supernatural things. He's going to speak to him in a supernatural way. But he brings all of his circumstances down to this one point in his life where he's about to call him and commission him. Can you remember how God spoke to you and the different things that happened to you in your life when God brought all the different pieces 
and we even think it was, sometimes I'll hear Christians say, well, the, and it was the craziest circumstance because if this person hadn't been there and, and traveled here or wasn't at camp or spoke to me in that, I wouldn't have got saved. But we know as Christians, that was God working. God was working in all of these circumstances to bring all these things down to one point. Now, that doesn't just happen to us in our salvation. It happens to us in our sanctification. As we continue to follow God and as we grow, and we grow in our wisdom and knowledge of him, uh, he, re- he does that same thing in circumstances. Um, here it's going to be in the blazing fire in the midst of a bush. But immediately he's going to go and God's going to reveal himself in, in his interactions with Pharaoh and with the people. He's just going to continue to work and to work and to work. So understanding the, the preparation for meeting God uh, as, he, as he really is. God moves all of our life towards this particular convers- um, confrontation. And some of the ways that he does that, um, he uses devastating events that have happened. Look over in chapter 2, verse 15. And um, it says that when, Mo- when Pharaoh had heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. And Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by the well. Now, you all are Old Testament scholars here. I can tell tonight. You guys know your Old Testament. What happened? Remember Moses was, had been drawn out of the water. Um, uh, then his own mother got to be asked to be a, uh, an assistant to one of Pharaoh's uh, princesses, and he was raised in the court of Pharaoh. And then he had this revelation that uh, it was revealed to him that he was actually going to that he was going to be somebody special that he was actually uh, an is a Hebrew, and then remember he saw an Egyptian abusing a Hebrew, beating a Hebrew, and so what he well, he did what a lot of us might have done, he went to defend him and help him, and he killed the Egyptian, and he hit, we have this picture of him hiding that sin like we do, he killed somebody, hit him in the sand, and when his when Pharaoh heard about it, his benefactor. His protector, he would have thought at that time, heard about it. He's going to have him killed. And so we can look back now and we can see how in those devastating circumstances, oh, my goodness, he's messed, every, he's messed his whole life up. We might have watched him as an up-and-coming star. If we didn't know the story, we could see Moses in the house of Pharaoh. I don't know about you, but I could even imagine how that I would have thought of Moses and thought, oh, my goodness, these Hebrew people are in a terrible situation. They're enslaved. Oh, but we have a friend in the White House. I mean, we have a friend in Pharaoh's house. We could, you could think that, couldn't you? And, and then what does he do? He tries to protect one of these Hebrew brethren, kills him, and now it's a, the worst thing that could happen. But God was still working in those devastating events. Forty years earlier, Moses was, was going to be expelled from that uh, uh, court. He was going to be expelled from uh, that particular situation. Now think about these life-changing things that happened to him. He was one of the king of kings. I mean, he was one of the, the hot shots. He was one of the princes. And now he's nobody. Now he's a criminal on the run. So God prepares with devastating events. And where does he go? It says he went, he heard of this the matter. He tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from his presence. He settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. One author wrote that God prepares us in isolated places. God sent Moses to the far side of the desert. He sends him to the backside uh, of the desert. Um, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, when Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Uh, Horeb itself, Horeb in just its definition itself means the backside 
of the desert. It's the isolated place, the South 40. It's a place of isolation, silence, loneliness. Horeb means dry ground, desolation. He was there and he was alone, and we could think about how he would reflect on his loss, his human loss. Um, he would think about how he reflected and, and he waited in that isolation. Has God ever done that to you? Have you been, ever been in a time or a place and it was something, some tragedy that entered your life and, and maybe you thought, well, I was on this track and as the Lord was blessing me, as he was blessing me on this track I was on, and then this big thing happened to me in my life. And it knocked me off course. And, and, and what's happened, it's okay because God has just forgotten me. But he'll remember me again. Child, brother, sister, God hadn't forgotten you. He's, he's not forgotten you. Whenever we go through these kinds of hard times, and this is one of the problems I have with prosperity gospel, that if you're being good and you're doing everything right, then God blesses you. And that if something bad comes in your life, well, you must have done something. That's one of the most hateful things I think you can say to a Christian. You know, um, I've had the fortune and misfortune of hearing people as they judge other people for how they raise their children. You know, I hear people without children say, well, if that was my child, I'd do X, Y, and Z. And then you know what happened? They have some of those, I almost said things, but they have some of those children, don't they? They have some of those babies. And guess what? They don't just do like you think they're going to do all the time. And, and hopefully this isn't recorded tonight, but you know, my daughter Beth, when, when we had, when she, before she had her first child, my oldest daughter, she used to tell Brendan and I all the time how we should raise the other two, her two, younger two siblings. Well, she's got two now. She doesn't talk about that anymore, you know. <laughs> Because life does that. Um, he sends us to a place. He sends us to the reality of the situation. And he sent Moses to an isolated place. And he had Moses taking care of sheep. It said that um, um, Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, he led, him the, to the, uh, he led the flock of, uh, to the west side of the wilderness. And he came to, Hor to Horeb. Now... He was taking care of sheep there, but you know, those weren't even his own sheep. Those were his father-in-law's sheep. So he's a man on the run. He's away from his family. He's away from everything he had known in Egypt, and he's not there for a little while. He's there for a good long while, and he's taking care of sheep. He was one of the princes of Egypt, but now he's doing this lowly task. Uh... There's so, I'm, I, this is going to sound so old-fashioned, but, you know, I think there's so much we learn as human beings by pushing a broom. There's so much we learn about having a boss and him telling you what to go do and you going and doing that. One of the incredible problems we have today is nobody wants to be told anything to do. Nobody wants, don't tell me what to do. And that was one of the most, that was one of the neatest things was to have a man to have a job and then have a boss to tell you what to do. And then to do it, do it right. That, that, was, that was everything was right with the world right there. But um, humbling things that we do. You know, we, we're all good about, usually we're good about talking about being a servant, uh, preaching about being a servant, saying we want to be a servant until somebody treats us like a servant. Guess what? When you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and you are one of his servants, you might get treated like a servant sometimes. Somebody may not be good to you. They may, they may abuse you a, a, a little bit. Uh, and that's what's happening to, to Moses here. He, uh, he's gone to this far off land, and he's doing, he's watching his life fade away before him, his dreams, his hopes. And it was in that time there on the backside of, his, of, the, of taking care of his father-in-law's sheep 
uh, that God, as he began to humble him, was also preparing him. And so, um, understanding the preparation that God makes for us in our lives. Secondly, what we see here is that he is experiencing the realization of his meeting, uh, of his meeting with God. He arrests him, so to speak. Um, he says um, in verse 2, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not was not consumed. So when we meet God in that first time, I love to talk about that and preach about that. But brothers and sisters, we are part of a different kind of uh, faith where God continues to meet with us. Um, what he's doing is he is taking charge of this situation and presenting the angel. He interjects into Moses' life. A burning bush, an angel of the Lord, speaks to him from the midst. This is a um, you know, the technical words for that, a theophany. Uh, some might call it an epiphany he's having, but it, it's not self-revelatory. He's meeting with God. God has interjected himself into his life. Now, can you remember the times when, when you were going through a certain period of your life and, I mean, God, in a mighty way, interjects? It's not always positive. Sometimes it's very troublesome. It's very negative. But he's, he arrests us. He takes the initiative. Um, I spent a lot of my young Christian life thinking that, praying and thinking, that if I can just get God to do this, if I can just push God to do this, if I can manipulate God and get him to do what I need him to do, then I'll get my mission done. You know, that's not what I have to remind myself, and I'm, hope, I'm hoping that I'm growing to the place where I'm, I don't get God to do anything. I submit to God. I become clay in God's hand. I, become warm, I want to become warm butter in his hand so he can squeeze me or mold me or make me or push me or send me where he wants me to go because every single time I go and do what I want to do and say what I want to say it never ever ever works out but he's such a gracious God he lets me go right ahead and do it anyway and then I forget and I mess up I come back to him and we may do it right two or three times but as soon as I mess up he reminds me again well he does this by arresting us he interjects himself into our lives and when he does that he begins to instruct us Verse 3 says that Moses takes time. He says, I must turn aside and see this marvelous sight while the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush. And he said to Moses, and he said, here I am. And he said, do not come. So see how he's beginning to instruct him. He arrests him. He interjects himself in his life. But then he begins to instruct him. He calls him. He gives him his mission. He's going to tell him what he is going to do in his life. Um, I heard, used to hear it a lot. I don't hear it much anymore. It says, sometimes we don't get to see God unless we get on our back. That's the only position we can see is when we finally get flat of our back. We get to a place where we're, where we're that's now we're God. And we pray for people. We used, we used to pray for people that way. You know, we used to pray for people and say, Lord, would you please do whatever you need to do to get hold of that boy? Somebody you loved or cared about. My daughter was correcting me. My youngest daughter was correcting me about this uh, here a few months, just months ago, and she was talking about how that, you know, Dad, I used to just pray, oh, oh Lord, please protect this person. Please watch over this person. And he said, you know what? I, I got to where I prayed, Lord, please do whatever you need to do in this person's life to get done whatever needs to get done. I, 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 I hated that Moses had to spend 40 years in the desert. I mean, that sounds, but you know what? I'm not in charge. I wasn't in charge of Moses' life. God knew what to do with Moses' life. 
And a lot of times we pray for protection for people when really we ought to hand people over. You know, what it, What did it say in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6 when it was talking about the, the man who had his father's wife? Remember, it was a problem of, of incest in the church, and they were glorifying it because of their liberty. And Paul's told them, he said, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. What's he saying then? He's, well, he's not saying that we send them to hell, but he says we do turn them over. There comes a point where you don't pray for somebody and say, gee, I hope really good things happen, but you pray for people and say, Lord, would you please do whatever it is you need to do in this person's life that they might see you again. Now, I will tell you that's a dangerous prayer. And you've got to be ready for whatever he does because you may even be on that list of what he's going to need to do. But that's the, way we have to, that's the way we have to be open to instruction. He arrests Moses by showing him this beautiful burning bush. He speaks to him from the midst of that bush. He instructs him and he begins to tell him and then he calls him. And he tells him, take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And the Hebrews took off their shoes where, they would, where we would take off our hats. It was a sign of respect. And when God is really present, there is always fellowship, but there also should be fear. And somebody's going to correct me for this when I preach something like this on a Sunday morning. I know perfect love casts, casteth out fear, but he's still a God to be feared and revered. And... I think we've done a disservice in the church in the 21st century and that we haven't instructed people that he is a, he's not to be trifled with. He's God. We're not God. We're his children. We're his lambs. And he does love us, but he's also a parent, an all-controlling, all-knowing, all-seeing parent. And, and that is significant. That's something for us to, to be aware of and to warn our children and our family and our friends of. Take off your sandals. This is a holy place. Before I go to this last point, let me just point out that at this very particular time in Moses' life, this is a very holy place. It's a holy place in his life. Uh, when I think about the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road, that was a holy place. You think about all that happened in Paul's life, his parents, his upbringing, his raising, becoming a Pharisee, persecuting them Christians. That was a high point in Paul's life when God struck him down on the Damascus Road, blinded him. Now, if, he'd been my, if Paul had been my brother or my good friend, could I have said that's a good thing? Oh, this is a good thing. Yeah, the Lord God, he's just struck uh, my friend Paul, and he's laying there now. He, he's going to be blind for a time. He's got to go see a guy named Ananias over on over in another city over here. Would you say that was good? I wouldn't, I would, I wouldn't say that was good probably, but God knew it was good. And Paul himself would tell you today, and so when tragedy or hard times come our way, sometimes it's a holy moment that God is presenting in your life, in my life, so that he can do what he needs to do to get done what he needs to get done. Last point is that we begin to know the identification of God and, and who he really is. No moment compares this moment. God reveals his name. The name of God is not mere identity. God's name resounds with his character and his reputation and his power. Moses knew the names of the Egyptian gods. This is what I was describing to you just a little bit earlier. He knew all the names. He knew Ra. He knew Isis. He knew all the Canaanite gods. And he asked him, he's, he, asked him what his, he asked him about his name, and he is going to, he's going to uh, reveal himself to him. And, you know, God's name is reflective of a couple of things. One of the things that he, when he tells him, I'm the father, I'm the God of, let's just read it. When he identifies himself, 
when he identifies himself and he says that, um, verse 6, and he also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face for he was afraid. One of the things that he was doing was he was giving continuity to his name, history. He was saying, listen, I have history with me. Do you know, uh, I was talking to Ronnie and Judy Taylor yesterday because Rosalie is very sick. Been a member here. I don't really know Miss Rosa. She's in a, uh, uh, a hospice over. Well, she was actually in a, a, a nursing home over at, at the Sulphur Springs. But this last week they brought her back to uh, Tyler, and she's in a nursing home there in Tyler. Not expected to live very long. But Ronnie and Judy were talking about how that Mrs. Rosa Lee was r- talking about her riding uh, a plow. I guess a planter to plant sweet potatoes to build the first church here at Armstrong. And I've heard some of y'all talk about that. But this is a church that a sweet potato crop built some back, somewhere back in the day. And it just reminded me of the history of how we got here. None of us has done this by ourselves. Not a one of us. You show me a, a Christian today and they say I'm a self-made man or self-made woman. I did it myself. They're, that first of all is a very self-inflated thing to say, isn't it? No, there's a history. God's been working longer than these 2,000 years. He's been working in all of our lives and through the history. And you have those histories in your families, in your lives. You guys can look back. I can look back at different times in the history of my family. And you know what? I can even look back in, in my mom and dad. They weren't lost, but they were away from God. They were not following God. But I can still look back and see glimpses of where God was protecting us. I'll, you, I'll show you one real, real quick with one. But, you know, I thought the day we left California, I was 12 years old, 11 years old, to move to Oklahoma. I thought that was the worst day of my life. What am I ever going to find in Oklahoma? I don't know, I don't know anybody in Oklahoma. What, what are we going to do in Oklahoma? What's going to happen to me in Oklahoma? And if you'd asked that 11-year-old boy, he would have said, please don't send me to Oklahoma. But I got saved in Oklahoma. I found my wife in Oklahoma. I had all three of my children in Oklahoma, in Texas. Well, two, one of them in Oklahoma, two of them in Texas. I got called to preach in Oklahoma. I was sent to Texas from Oklahoma. I got a history with the Lord. He can, he can take me when I get to feeling sorry for myself and, oh, this is terrible, he's forgotten about me. Hey, 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 I have a history with you, Michael. I've been working in your life. And he has a history in your life, too. He's been working in your life. You can see his activity You can see his fingerprint, and he simply describes himself. God said to Moses, I am who I am, and he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. The ego may I sayings of the New Testament are the I am sayings. That's where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The, 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 the Jews hated it when Jesus said that. Because that, you know what they were thinking of, don't you? Whenever Jesus said that in the New Testament, they knew what he was saying. That young whippersnapper, Jesus, that, who's claiming to be a Messiah, he keeps saying, I am, I am. And guess what? He was the great I am. Amen? They had it right. That was Jesus, son of the living God. I am that I am. Do you have a history with him? all the way back to your burning bush experience when he spoke to you and miraculous 
seemingly unrelated circumstances revealed himself to you, you were saved. Do you have history with him? Do you see him in your life, in your parents' life, maybe your grandparents' life? The fingerprint of God in your life and in my life, doing what he does. Just me and God, amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word tonight, dear Lord. And Father, as we dismiss tonight, I pray that this, this coming week, you'll just help us to see, dear Lord, different places in our life where you have manifested yourself and you have been there for us. And Lord, that even many times what seems like a tragedy is really an opportunity for us to get to know you better and to receive instruction from you and to be sent to your work. I appreciate that very much. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. Thank you all for coming tonight. You've been listening to the Sunday morning worship services of the Pruitt Baptist Church in Van, Texas. A podcast of the service is available on demand at the KCAA website at www.kcaaradio.com. The Pruitt Baptist Church is located at 9908 State Highway 110 in Van, Texas. The Sunday worship schedule includes Bible study at 9.45 a.m., morning worship at 11 a.m., and evening worship at 6 p.m. For more information about the Pruitt Baptist Church, visit their website at www.pruittbaptistchurch.com or call 903-963-7473. You're on board KCAA's Inland Talk Express. KCAA, Loma Linda, 1050 AM, the station that leaves no listener behind. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.